These are the words of the living God. Then, uh, excuse me, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together to be instructed by your word now at this time. And we thank you for uh, the opportunity to hear from you. We pray that you would come powerfully and wonderfully by your spirit and open our minds and hearts to understand, to understand the truths contained here in these holy scriptures. Help me to get out of the way. Let your word be heard. Give us grace to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So today we are looking at the commission of Christ to the twelve apostles. Just prior to this, he has commissioned uh, the twelve. And Jesus has begun his ministry, and he's beginning to recruit some help uh, in the work that the Father had called him to do. And as we will see, the twelve here are commissioned to do a very specific work in the world in a very specific way. Uh, But their commission and their work is very much the same as the work that Christ has called us to do in the world today. It's easy for us to get off track as a church and to lose sight of mission, of what we're actually supposed to be doing. But today this passage will bring into perspective for us the work that Christ has called us to do and how we are to go about doing it. So I've broken the commission of Christ here down into six points. Six points. The mission, the message, the means, the money, the method, and the malediction. Okay? Six points, six M's. They say a good Presbyterian sermon is three points. Well, this one's six, so it's going to be really good, okay? (laughs) Just joking. Um, Hopefully it's good. But six M's maybe will help you as we go through, okay? The mission, the message, the means, the money, the method, and the malediction. I chose malediction because I couldn't find another word with an M in front of it that really described what Jesus was doing there at the end. Pronouncing a curse. That's what it is. Pronouncing a curse. The malediction. Um, So we're first going to look at the specific commission to the apostles. As I said, they have a very specific commission. And we will look at each one of the six points. And then, when we're finished, we'll come back and look at those six points again and see how they apply to our lives and our work in the church and in the world today. So just so you know up front, we're going to go over the commission of the apostles first. We're going to do all six of those, and then afterwards, I'll make the six applications, okay? 
All right, starting back in verses 5 and 6. Looking at the mission. Verses 5 and 6, we see the mission. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. First, who are the twelve mentioned here? Well, it is the twelve apostles that Jesus has just commissioned prior to this, Peter, James, John, and all uh, the rest. So it is those twelve that he calls to take up the mission. Now, you might say that the scope of the apostles' ministry here seems rather narrow. Jesus tells them to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And if you were thinking that, you would be right. (laughs) Uh, The first phase of Jesus' ministry in the world is very particular. He came to fulfill the promises that God had made to the nation of Israel. Promises that God made to the fathers. And Paul says this very explicitly in his letter to the Romans. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Who is the circumcised? The Jews. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So Christ comes on the scene with a mission. He's got some promises to fulfill when he gets on the scene. Remember, God promised from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden after the fall of Adam that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. Remember this first promise. We've been talking about it throughout our study. It began in the Garden. Who is the seed of the woman? It ultimately points to Christ, but it refers to the people of God. And the woman is Eve, who later on becomes the nation of Israel from whom Christ comes. Right. So the seed of the woman, Christ is going to come, crush the head of the serpent, which is the devil. So here Christ comes on the scene to fulfill those promises. Um, Every promise after that promise in the Garden of Eden, starting with Abraham, is made to a very particular people. It is made to the nation of Israel, specifically. And so he comes to fulfill those promises to them. He's going to undo and reverse the curse of the effects of sin and death in the world, and he is going to crush the head of the serpent, the devil. That's why Christ comes on the scene. So he initially comes on, and he is fulfilling those promises. So his ministry begins with that particular people, but it is not limited to only one nation forever. It just begins with them. So you'll see for a time that the apostles go first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. When the Jews are rejecting Christ, they shake the dust off their feet, as it were, and they start going to the Gentiles. But they first come to offer them the promises that were made to them by God throughout the whole Old Testament. So it's always first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And you'll see that if you look at the apostles' ministry in the, um, in the Gospels and in the early chapters of the book of Acts. They're going specifically to the Jews. And even throughout Acts, you'll see they're going to the synagogues and talking to the Jews first. And this is so God can remain faithful to his promises. But... 
When the Jews continue to reject Christ time and time again, he eventually sets his sights on the whole world. And then he commissions us, as a matter of fact, in this gospel, to go to all the nations, right? The Great Commission comes to us in this same gospel, in the end of Matthew's gospel. I've been given all authority, this is Christ, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now go and disciple the nations, all the nations under heaven. So it was God's plan to save the whole world through Jesus Christ from the very beginning, but it starts with the nation of Israel. Now, as I said, this is the mission of the apostles. Jesus commissions the apostles to help him in this work of undoing uh, and reversing the curse of sin and death in the world. Now, how are they to go about doing this? Well, it starts with the message, right? So first we see the mission, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and then the message. What is the message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? We see it there in our text, verse 7. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message that John the Baptist preached. It's the message that Jesus preaches. And it is now the message that he commissions the twelve to go out and preach. The kingdom of God has arrived, and it has arrived in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in their midst because of him. He brings it with him. The radical, world-changing events that were prophesied throughout uh, the Old Testament were beginning to take place. God has come to take up residence among his people. Remember, we said they were looking for this promise. They were looking for God to come. He has come and taken up residence among his people in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's come to forgive their sins and to give them new life and a new hope like they have never had before. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message that they preach. That is, it is here. (laughs) The kingdom is here. Come, enter in through Jesus and receive the promises. Okay? So that's the message. Next, we have the means. The means by which they are to carry out this task. And we see that in the first part of verse 8. He says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. These good works, or these miracles, are to accompany the preaching of the gospel. This is the means by which they are to go out carrying out this ministry of preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, These good works are to accompany the preaching of the gospel. This is to say that they are to be done in conjunction with one another. Right? They preach and they do the miracles together. As they are going, they are to preach the message of Christ and they are to do good deeds. And these good things that they do accompany the message they preach as a sign to their hearers that the message that they preach is valid. So they're not to sort of just do this to impress their hearers or to do it just to be nice to them, but it's rather a part of their gospel ministry. They are to do the good works in conjunction with with their preaching, and they are not to do them one without the other. Again, it's interesting to note that Jesus does the same things throughout his ministry. Um, The very things that Jesus commissions the twelve to do, um, cleanse 
cleanse the lepers, heal the sick, raise the dead. Jesus does all of these same things during his ministry. So again, the apostles' ministry expands the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They expand the kingdom of heaven through their labors. They are entering into the ministry with Jesus to help him in this work of reversing the curse of sin and death in the world. And by the way, that's what these signs are a foretaste of, right? They are to uh, heal the sick and cast out demons and raise people from the dead. And this is the reality that will exist when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. This is to say there will be no sickness. There will be no disease. There will be no death. The kingdom of Christ eliminates these things from the world once and for all. So this is just the beginning of that. They're getting a foretaste of the fullness of the kingdom that is to come. Okay? Uh, 8b, so the latter part of verse 8, we see the money aspect of their commission. So that was the means. Now we're looking at the money. 8b through 10, he says, You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. First, he tells them that they are not to use their gifts for profit. Okay, they're... Their ministry, their office, their gifts, they've all been given to them by God. And he freely chose to give them to them. They did not do anything to earn them. And they are to, in like manner, freely give to others what they have been given. In other words, they're not to be out there slanging the gospel. Okay, They're not to uh, go out there and, and preach and administer looking for some sort of reward, some sort of recompense for what they're doing. They received without paying, they are to give without paying. Next, they are not to worry about their provisions. Uh, In each one of the restrictions placed on the apostles here by Jesus, he's placing emphasis on the fact that they don't need to take anything extra with them. Okay, They don't need money, they don't need an extra bag to carry money, They don't need an extra staff. They don't need an extra pair of sandals, an extra jacket. They are to go as they are and depend on God to provide for them what they need along the way. And he finishes by saying, for the laborer deserves his food, or it could be translated provision. So by no means is Jesus saying that the apostles are not to benefit from those who are receiving their ministry. He's just saying that they're not to require it of them beforehand, right? They're not supposed to show up and set up two lines and, okay, everybody with tumors over here, those are going to be $25 a pop. Everybody with demons over here, those will be $50. No, they don't do any of that, okay? They go and they do their work and they trust God to provide. And God uses the people to provide for his servants. Okay. So that is the money. In verses 11 through 14, we see the method the method that they're to use when they're carrying out this ministry. In other words, this is the process that they were to go through with everyone that they encountered. Verse 11, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. 
And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. A couple of things to mention here. First, he says, when you find those who are worthy, stay with them. That is, those who are fit or suitable. That's what worthy means. Uh, Those who are receptive to the message. Those who are open to the message. You are to uh, see if they will let you... uh, He says, you stay with them. Set, Set up shop in their house, as it were. Their house is to become a base for you as you go about uh, doing your labors. And this practice of receiving people into their homes like this wouldn't have been uncommon in the ancient Near East. They did not have a um, holiday inn on every corner like we do today. So when they came to town, if there wasn't an inn, they, people would have to stay with one another, right? So it wouldn't be uncommon. They would receive them into their homes. Um, so most likely, and... Uh, People have, theologians have um, pondered what this might have looked like. But, uh, you know, they say things like when they came into the city, they would preach, you know, sort of like an open air preacher like we see today out there in the public square. Um, It's possible, like in the book of Acts, uh, they say like they were invited into the synagogues to preach and to teach. And then the people who were receptive to their message, they would ask them if they could stay with them. And then they would go back to their homes set up base there, and then go door-to-door. Sort of like you see people doing today, door-to-door evangelism, knocking on doors, right? Although that's becoming much and much, uh, much less accepted in our culture. So it's something like this. And when they go into the house, they were to greet it. Uh, that is, they were to declare the traditional greeting, which is still used today, peace to you. They come in, peace to you. And then they would share their message and their ministry with that family, and if they accepted it, uh, they would let their peace rest upon the house. That is, the message of peace that they preach, which resulted in peace and blessing, would rest upon the home. So the initial greeting of peace was sort of anticipating this ultimate peace that the families would receive if they embraced the message that the apostles preached. Now those who rejected their message and their ministry did not receive this ultimate peace. And that is what he means when he says, let your peace return to you. So that is the method. Finally, oh, one more piece to the method. Shaking the dust off the feet, right? They were to shake the dust off their feet when they leave the house or town of anybody who would not receive them. And this was a sign of their rejection. Uh, When the Jews would go into Gentile territories, when they came back into the Holy Land, they would shake the dust off their feet as a sign that those Gentile territories were unclean. Right? And Jesus is telling them here to do the same thing with those who reject the message. They're ultimately rejecting the Christ that they preached, and so they're to be treated like Gentiles. That is, they're to be treated like unbelievers, those who are still under the judgment of God. So it's a sign that they're under judgment. This is similar to what we do today when we rub our hands together like this. We say that we're done with something, right? It's similar to that. <clears throat> so the method was simple. They would come. They would greet their hearers. They would share the message of the gospel of the kingdom with them. If they accepted it, the blessing that accompanied the message would come to them. That is, they would experience salvation and healing. And if they did not, they were marked out as those who remained under the judgment. So that's the method. Finally, we see the malediction 
or the curse that was pronounced on the people in towns that reject the gospel. And we see that in verse 15. He says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Jesus says it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it would be for them. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah are held out in the Bible as examples of what happens to those who do not repent. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah is uh, what happens to those who continue on in their sin without repentance. Judgment takes place. Judgment falls upon them. Here the message is clear. Those who reject the gospel will be judged more severely, more severely than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Well, let's think about it. They had more light. They had more revelation than Sodom and Gomorrah. Here is Christ in their midst. The kingdom has arrived. His people are out there preaching uh, the message. They had all of the witness from the Old Testament prophets and all the promises that were given to them. And here comes Christ's messengers preaching that message that it's fulfilled in Jesus, and they are rejecting it, right? So they have greater light and greater revelation that is uh, given to them. Rejecting the message and the messengers was not just a rejection of the message and the messenger. It was a rejection of the Christ whom they preached, and therefore they end up under a much more severe judgment. All right, now that we have seen the six ways in which this commission applied specifically to the twelve apostles, we'll look at the six ways in which it applies to those of us who are living in the church today. So we'll start back at the top. This is the application section. We looked at their mission, so how does their commission and each one of the elements of the commission apply to us today? In what ways can we kind of fit that into the commission that Christ gives us? Starting back with the mission... Now, I said that this particular phase of the apostles' ministry was very particular, right? They went to the nation of Israel. But nevertheless, the battle plan remains the same. In other words, their their scope of their mission was different, but the purpose of the mission was the same. They were to make disciples, right? And that's what we're to do today. We make disciples. Their mission was the nation of Israel. Ours is every nation under heaven. In the Great Commission, Christ says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and now go, now go and disciple the nations. Essentially what he says, go disciple the nations. That's every nation under heaven. You see, because of what Christ has done, he's been given the entire world as his inheritance, and he's presently at work to take it over. Remember last week we said that from the time of Adam to the time of Christ that the devil had been running amok, but the devil sort of had this borrowed authority, and it was only temporary. It was for a time. The man Christ, he comes on the scene, conquers the temptations of the devil, and for the first time in human history, a man did not give in. He conquered every temptation that was thrown at him, and since then, he's been at work, uh, he's been at work to put Satan underfoot. And we see here early in his ministry that he commissioned the apostles to help him do this work. And in the Great Commission, he has enrolled us as well. You see, God has not given up on his original plan to subdue the world by way of a man. But Christ has taken up that mission and he commissions us or he calls us to enter into it with him. 
He's using us in that work now. So that's the mission. Theirs was narrow, the nation of Israel, although later it included the rest of the nations, but ours is global, right? From the start, we are evangelizing every nation, every people group under heaven. All people are to come to Christ. So that's the mission, the message. It is through gospel ministry that the curse of sin and death is reversed in the world. I'll say that again. It's through gospel ministry that the curse of sin and death is reversed in the world. So how are we to do it? How are we to accomplish this mission? Well, the same way that the first disciples did. It starts with the message, right? Message is really important. That's the message that God uses to set the world free. And the message is the same. It's the announcement of the king and his kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, over the years, this message has been uh, eroded and become rather impotent. Uh, in many evangelical circles, the gospel sounds something like this. Uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and you know sin has kind of got in the way and messed that all up, and he sent Jesus to fix that for you, and now all you have to do is accept him into your heart, you know, pray this prayer, sign this card, walk the aisle, or whatever. You know, your things like, Jesus is waiting, he's at the door, and he's knocking, and he just wants you to let him in. Give him a try. You won't be disappointed, right? This is a lot of what we hear in American evangelicalism today. And many of you have been saved under similar preaching, And I don't doubt the fact that there's a lot of truth in this proclamation. Um, Anytime that Christ is held out, God saves people despite our short-sightedness or ignorance with respect to the message. But this is not a full-orbed gospel message. It's it's a rather truncated um, gospel message that runs the risk many times of emasculating the message. In order for the message to be most effective, we have to preach it with clarity and in accord with the Scriptures. In other words, we need to preach what the Bible says when it comes to the Gospel. The Gospel of the Kingdom says that the Kingdom has arrived in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that He has begun to invade the kingdoms of this world. Because of what He has done, God has given Him every nation under heaven as His inheritance. They're all His. He says in the Great Commission, all authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? And because of what he has done, God has made him Lord of all. Because of what he has done in his, in his life and his death and his resurrection, God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We read this morning that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. If you are to be saved, you must be saved at the name of Jesus Christ. He has been resurrected and exalted and made king of the entire universe, and he now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's the gospel. You see, there's a difference between this message and the last one that I mentioned. Uh, The last one is um, make Jesus, it's sort of, you know, make Jesus into your Lord. Um, uh, Make him into your king. Accept him into your heart. And the gospel is Jesus is Lord, He is king, and we are to get into accord, right? 
were to act accordingly. In other words, repent of your sins and bow the knee to him as Lord and Savior. See, the gospel of the kingdom is much more complete. It is all-encompassing. You'll never hear any of that other stuff that I mentioned in the first message being preached by the apostles in uh, the gospels or in the book of Acts. But when you look at the apostles' preaching, it is the kingdom has arrived. Jesus has been resurrected and made Lord. He's the only hope that you have to be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel's not an option. It's not something that you try. It's a much more definitive message. It's what God has done, and it is what God is doing, and we are called to get in line. The, the gospel is a proclamation of a present reality. When we're preaching the gospel, we are telling people the way that things just are. This is the way that they are. Not the way that they can be if you make them that way. It's just the way that they are. So that kind of changes our perspective on evangelism, doesn't it? We are, we are proclaiming to people a present reality. And we are to bring ourselves into accord with that reality. <clears throat> but again, um, I don't deny the fact that God uses these other evangelical um, punchlines to save people. Okay, I'm, I'm just saying they're not in the Bible, right? So this changes our perspective on gospel preaching. Okay, so the message. Now we're looking at the means. Let's talk about the means. We said that they were to do certain things, right? And that those things that they did were to accompany the message that they preached. And this was a part of their gospel ministry, and it's to be a part of ours as well. Their miraculous gifts that they had and the things that they did validated their ministry, and they were not to do one without the other. And friends, it is the same for us. Now granted, the apostles were given uh, miraculous gifts. They, um, they cast out demons, they raised the dead, they healed the sick. And even though we may not have these same gifts in the church today, we are still call, called to do these same things, and we're to do them in conjunction with the message that we preach. In other words, we are to minister to the whole person. We're to minister to the whole person. If we see somebody who is broken and homeless out there, we're not to say that just because their greatest need is Christ, the only thing we need to do is preach to them and then move on. Okay? No, we're supposed to first go and give them something to eat and then preach the gospel to them. Or if you... Or if you run into somebody uh, who is dealing with a divorce and they need counseling in their life. Yes, their greatest need is Christ. But they also need somebody to walk with them through that divorce and to listen to them and to help them think rightly about their situation. Our food pantry here at the church is a great example of this. We have people who come here to the church month in and month out, year after year, and we are feeding those people. We are giving them something to eat. And that is gospel ministry. Okay? And if you go and talk to some of the people that work in that food pantry, they will tell you that over time, God will open up windows and doors of opportunity so that you can minister to those people's greater needs, to their deeper needs. That is, so that you can minister Christ to them. Okay? So that's gospel ministry. They are to be done in conjunction with one another. Now, I'm not saying you can't, ever preach the gospel without giving somebody something to eat. I'm not saying that, okay? But most of the time, these things will be done in accord with one 
another. This is gospel ministry. It's kingdom work, and it's part and parcel of proclaiming the message. Again, we're to follow Jesus' Jesus' example. What did he do in his ministry? He presented himself to the people as the king and the savior, but he also gave them something to eat, didn't he? When they were hungry, he fed the people. Right? He forgave their sins, but he also dealt with their demons. Right? And we're to do the same. Okay? So we follow Jesus' example and the example of the apostles. That's the means. The money. Just as the apostles received their gifts freely from God, so do we. And just as they were not to obligate anybody to pay them for their ministry, so do we. God has equipped the body of Christ with all types of different uh, talents and gifts and abilities. And we are to offer our gifts to the church and to the world voluntarily and in gratitude for what Christ has given us. And you will notice as you go and faithfully use your gifts, employ them in the body of Christ and out there in the world, God will provide for you what you need along the way. Just funny how he does that. He continues to provide for his people. They were not to bring anything extra, and neither are we. This is to say that we are to trust God to give us all that we need right when we need it. And as I said, you'll go out there in the world and in the church, and you will serve, and you'll find that the thing you need is right there when you need it. If you're serving God, and you're doing his work, and you're doing what he's called you to do, he will provide the means for you to do it. So we're to learn to depend on him alone to provide for us as we serve him. And this goes for individuals and for the church as a whole. The church as a whole is also to depend upon God to provide for us exactly what we need to do the work that he's called us to do. He's given this church a mission here in this town, and he is going to provide for us what we need to do it. He'll continue to do that because it's his work. But we must remain faithful to him. We must trust in him to provide. Okay? So that's the money. The method. Uh, The method we talked about is also the same, and I think it's important for us to get this. When you're out there doing gospel ministry, you will find that there are people who are receptive to your message, and there are people who are not. And we are to respond in like kind. Okay? Um, When you find people that are uh, receptive to your ministry, you are to labor along with them. You are to invest in them, counsel them, befriend them, help them, pray for them, etc., to see what God will do in their lives, because you never know what God is going to do in somebody's heart through your labor. So to continue with them. They're receptive to the message. They're open to it. Continue laboring with them. But when people outright reject your message, and this will happen, people will reject it and continue on in their old ways, there comes a time when you need to shake the dust off your feet. Now, we need to be uh, discerning about how we do this. I think there is a wisdom in recognizing when somebody is taking advantage of you just because you are a Christian. And people will do that. They will know that you are seeking to love them and to bless them and serve them because you're a Christian, and they will take advantage of you as a result. And this uh, will burn up all your time, all your energy, And as I said, they continue on living their lives just the way that they always have. And there comes a point in time when you need to draw the line and say, that's it. You know what, God? I'm handing this person over to you. I've done all that I can, but you're in control. Have your most holy way with them. And because God is in control of all things and you're not, you can have peace about doing that, about handing them over to God. And I'm not saying that that doesn't mean you you don't come back you know, maybe a month later or a year later to check back with that person to see if there's been any change in their life, right? There's been any new developments. 
they're repenting, uh, they are positive to the gospel message, they're receptive to it, these things uh, start to uh, happen. And as a result, you continue to labor with them. But there comes a time when a person just continues on in their sin, unrepentant, and they are using you, they're trampling you underfoot, they're taking advantage of you, they're devouring you, and you need to shake the dust off your feet and move on. And who knows, God, God may take the, the, the work and the labor that you have done in those people's lives, the seeds that you have planted, and, and bring them to fruition later on with somebody else. But you can't have all your time and your efforts bound up in this person when they're taking advantage of you. You move on and serve wherever God would have you to, and God will use somebody else in their life, maybe, later on. Right? Because again, it's God's work. He's in control of that. Finally, the malediction. Uh, oh, one more thing I wanted to mention. The, uh, the apostles' ministry was sort of like a short-term mission trip. <laughs> you know how you sometimes go overseas and you serve in one town for a couple of weeks? or So you have a limited window of time to do things and sort of a limited um, ministry that you're able to do. Uh, because of that time constraint, it's, it's, it's this, that's how it was for them. Okay, So they're going to a city and then they're going to another town, and they're evangelizing these people, and they're moving on. But for us, we live in Princeville, Illinois, with people who we're going to see every day for years and years to come. So there's a different dynamic to our ministry, and that has to be taken into consideration uh, when we're doing gospel ministry, when we shake the dust off our feet and when we don't and so forth, when we move on and when we continue. So there's a, there's a different dynamic to the ministry that we have here. Um, just, I wanted to mention that. All right. The malediction. When people refuse to hear the gospel of Christ, they're rejecting Christ. Excuse me, and I think this is something that we must keep in mind when we are doing ministry. A lot of times when we're doing ministry, we can feel, um, we can get our feelings hurt, right? We can feel like we're being rejected, right? But we need to remember during those times that it is not us who they are rejecting. It is Christ, right? They're rejecting the message that we preach, which is Christ. And because of that, they will come under a very severe punishment. In America today, there is a ton of light. There are Bibles and tracts and messages everywhere you look. There's a church on every corner. And because of that, and there's, there's people out there laboring, preaching the truth. Um, and because of that, this nation will come under great judgment because they have great light, Right? And we need to keep that in mind whenever we are doing gospel ministry. And it should drive us in the way that we do ministry. So we're to, on one hand, remember that they're not rejecting us. Therefore, we should not become discouraged. They're rejecting Christ, right? But at the same time, we should grieve because they're rejecting the Christ before whom they will one day stand and give an account for their rejection. Okay? It's got to hold both together. So in the final analysis, we have seen that the apostles were called to take up the mission of Christ along with him in doing the work of reversing the curse of sin and death in the world. There were six parts of the commission, the mission, the message, the means, the money, the method, and the malediction. We too have been called to take up this work along with Christ of renewing the world through gospel ministry. So let us be diligent to stay on task and given to the work that he's called us to keeping each aspect of this commission in mind as we seek to faithfully serve him in the church and in the world. Let's pray together.